Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you with a support patreon.com. I'm joined by Kyle Alander, who runs the Christian Idealism YouTube channel, and Tim Howard, who runs the Invoking Theism YouTube channel. We're going to be talking about their paper that they wrote, um, not published in any official philosophy journal, but they just wrote a paper. It was really good um, about a cumulative argument for God, responding to Grandma being kind of his naturalism. So, how's it going, guys? Great, man. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Awesome. Um, it should be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to this. Do you guys want to start off? I want to give like just like brief introductions uh, in case people don't know who you are. So maybe start with Kyle and go to Tim. Yeah. So my name is Kyle Allender. I um, I run the Christian Idealism YouTube channel. My main area focuses the philosophy of mind and typically dealing with questions of consciousness, um, like what the nature of consciousness is. Um, I, my, my view is what's called idealism. And I sort of have videos that sort of defend it. But I think philosophy religion is also um, an important area that I also focus on because I think they they both work together. So my overall worldview is connected to both God and idealism in general. So um, that's that's what I do on my channel. Um, and I, I just want to emphasize that um, I try to read the best on both sides. So I'm trying to understand truth. It's not like I'm trying to defend my particular worldview. I'm just trying to understand um, the nature of reality the best I can. So... So yeah, again, it's Christian Ideals and go check it out. Yeah, and Tim, feel free to introduce yourself whenever you get your mic stuff figured out, so take some time. Um, but Benjamin, Susan, Ramon, thank you everyone for joining me. Um, if you could, right, Tim, you can right. introduce yourself. My mic was, way, was up way too high, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, there we go, perfect. Well, yeah, uh, I'm Tim. I run the Invoking Theism YouTube channel. And um, I'm on Twitter. That's where I'm mainly um, posting my thoughts and kind of my ideas throughout the week. Um, I make videos and discuss topics related to philosophy of religion, metaphysics, um, logic, things of that sort. Um, and um, kind of my, uh, my love is in terms of the sciences is for um, biological evolution. So I have a lot of, um, I do a lot of reading and talking about that as well. So that's kind of what I do. Yeah, I saw you had a conversation with Cy Gart and Jackson Weed talking about something really complicated with like biology, like extended synthesis, synthesis or something like that. Yeah, I was. Um, I had Cy Gart, who's a Christian, uh, retired PhD biochemist. Um, Jackson Wheat, who is um, he's in he's at, he's getting his master's in organismal biology, and then an, and then a professor at Rutgers University as well discussing um our uh differing views on whether or not um the current evolutionary paradigm uh the modern synthesis needs to be extended to incorporate uh the um new findings and new views related to evolution yeah that's awesome um i encourage everyone to check out the conversation on their channel on uh, tim's channel if they want to but we're going to get into this argument for god in this paper um so they brought forth a cumulative argument for god using a lot of different factors and responded to graham oppie and his naturalism which if you're listening to this you're probably somewhat familiar with um so probably the best of what atheism has to say and hopefully some of the best of what theism has to say with regards to this but what inspired this paper um for both of you guys to co-write this okay so i guess i should mention uh, the work of Oppie. No, I don't have all his books, but I do have, I guess, the relevant ones in regards to his uh, naturalism, his critique of naturalism. Because Oppie, Oppie, Graham Oppie is like considered the best atheism has to offer, at least today. I mean, of course, you could argue that maybe there's other philosophers that you might like, but um, I think 
um, that Graham Mopi is probably the torchbearer of atheism, right? And I've I've talked to a lot of atheists that are into this stuff, and they tell me the same thing, like, yes, Mopi is the sort of torchbearer of atheism. And two books I just want to mention is, number one, Arguing About Gods, and then number two is The Best Argument Against God. So in this book, he sort of, he doesn't necessarily defend naturalism, but what he does do is sort of attack a lot of traditional arguments for God that people have used. And so the main conclusion in the book is that there is no argument for against God um, that can work. And what this means is basically when you're looking at arguments, you have to look at the world, the global theory that you're trying to explain data. And so the reason why he doesn't think any argument works is because any argument you're bringing forth, any sort of like deductive argument for God, the naturalist is going to be able to explain that sort of data. Right. So what he argues is that both theism and naturalism can equally sort of explain the data. And so that's why, you know, when it comes to arguments, we shouldn't um, use that approach. So a different approach he uses is in this book, um, The Best Argument Against God. And his argument here is a cumulative argument. So what that means is he's looking at the, the general facts about the world. Right. And he's saying, OK, well, we can explain all this on naturalism. But then his main argument or the best argument against God is we'll get into that later. But basically that um, naturalism is simpler than theism. So that's that's what um, motivated us to sort of um, write this paper. Um, I don't know if, if Tim wants to have any has any additional thoughts or anything. Yeah, this this paper was the um, was the uh, outworking of a longer, larger conversation Kyle and I began to have back in 2020, um, probably around the, the middle of 2020, um, on when uh, he started to read uh, Graham Oppie's work and I started to um, also take Graham Oppie seriously and I started to um, really try to understand exactly why he was revered as the way he was and his argumentation and how he likes to view uh, theism versus naturalism. So we kind of um, naturally kind of came together, started talking about our um, our uh, similar uh, conclusions. And as we developed them further, we pretty much um, kind of kind of decided like, OK, um, we've really teased this out pretty far. We've really thought about this pretty far. Um, let's go ahead and put our thoughts um, like a, some, something concrete and then that's kind of how the paper came together yeah great so to open up the paper i was just reading through it and we're just going to outline this paper for everyone listening um you start off with like theoretical values to help us like kind of look at like the christian um the theism atheism debate like how do we look at this um so what are some of those theoretical values that you guys talk about on comparing ideas here yeah so the two main ones is um simplicity and explanatory power now there's different variations of simplicity and there's also different variations of explanatory power. And I think, so there's a few other virtues that he mentions, which is fitness of data and then, or goodness of fit. And then there's predictability. But I think those two sort of are subsumed within explanatory power itself. So I think the more general way to look at it is just those two virtues, which is simplicity and explanatory power. But of course there's different ways you could sort of there's different views of simplicity and then there's different views of explanatory power. Um, so I guess when it comes to simplicity, um, there are two various, there's two main types of simplicity. There's what's called syntactical simplicity, which is 
um, trying to explain the most with the least. And then you have ontological simplicity, which is about the simplest number of kinds of entities we're trying to explain. And what Oppie does is he, he focuses on ontological simplicity. And the reason why I brought up the other type, which is syntactical simplicity, is because that's what someone like Richard Swinburne would use. So Richard Swinburne is going to use syntactical simplicity, and then someone like Oppie is going to use ontological simplicity. Um, and I think understanding that distinction is very important because then, then we're going to be able to really grasp okay, which theory is really simpler, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's that was that's the general idea. But um, I don't know, Tim, you have any additional thoughts on that? Or yeah, um, yeah, the 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 theoretical virtues is how Oppie um, settles the score between the questions of theism and naturalism. And so taking that approach, um, we're looking at, okay, you know, theoretical virtues are um, things that um, when you're making and undergoing theory choice, um, what are some things that you want a theory to be able to do? You want to be able to have um, explanatory power, you want to be able to have scope, um, depth, breadth, uh, simplicity, predictability, and all these different other things. Um, but what's really interesting is that for um, for Oppie, he he sees that um, there's nothing um, that is uh, that makes theism more attractive than naturalism in terms of its explanatory power. And so he says, basically, all else being equal. Um, naturalism is going to be simpler and therefore that's why he chooses naturalism as the best theory of reality. So that's how, that's how Oppie ultimately argues. And he looks at the theoretical virtues of the, the of, of the hypotheses that we're presenting theism versus naturalism. We're talking about, you know, what are the, you know, the commitments, um, and things and, you know, which one has ultimately the most theoretical costs, advantages and disadvantages. So that's that's really what the approach is fundamentally, and um, on in regards to simplicity, he's going to say that you know you have what we consider. Um, he says I'm going to explain everything in terms of just something that's natural. He said, but theism is going to explain things. It's going to have something that's natural, and then it's going to have something that is supernatural. And Oppie will then employ ontological simplicity and say, well. The ontological kind that I'm using to explain is just one kind, which is the natural kind. But theists, they have two kinds. They have the supernatural kind and they have the natural kind as well. Well, I'm just going to – well, if they are equal in terms of their explanatory power, why do I need the supernatural kind? So I'm going to shave off the supernatural kind and just keep the natural, and therefore naturalism comes out as being the most virtuous theory when you're undergoing this kind of comparison. Um, that's ontological simplicity. And as we go on, we can really get into um, kind of more detailed about ontological simplicity versus syntactical pro uh, simplicity. But that's, mm -hmm. that's basically like what the approach is. And syntactical pro uh, simplicity is like the simplicity of the explanation itself, the elegance of the explanation, appealing to the fewest principles, things of that sort. So um, that's a very important fundamental part of the conversation. Uh, when we're when we're looking at this, um, so yeah, 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 that's great. Um, do you guys mind? Um, I put a link to the paper in the description. I forgot to ask you off stream. Um, no, you go fine, ahead, right? do it. Yeah, 
Yeah. Okay. Fine. Awesome. Just didn't sure if it was waiting for anything. Um, but so we talked a lot about like like simplicity in session opi, but let's talk about explanatory power for a second. Like um it's the second thing that you kind of talk about that's valuable here. Um this question that live chat already about that that same exact thing. So how does explanatory explanatory power weigh into this whole debate? Um, yeah, so in the paper, we, well, first of all, I mean, I mentioned earlier how there's different variations of simplicity, but then there's also different variations of explanatory power. And one of those variations is a sort of distinction between what's called extrinsic explanatory power and then intrinsic explanatory power. So extrinsic, I mean, so, okay, so any theory could have extrinsic explanatory power, meaning that it can account for some kind of data, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like for example, um, let's say I get a letter in the mail and I could explain, like let's say if I don't want to believe that there was one person that wrote it, where I can make a sort of hypothesis that says, well, no, one person didn't write it. Every single word was written by a different person or maybe some aliens did it or maybe it just popped in there by necessity, right? Um, so that's an, that's an extrinsic explanatory power, but an intrinsic explanatory power would be about the unification itself. So basically explaining the most with the least. Right, um, and a intrinsic explanatory powers are what we look for in science, right? Um, so for example, you look at evolution, right? Um, it has intrinsic explanatory power because we would predict um, certain fossils to be certain places or DNA, whereas you could you could have another, a different explanation. What you could have is, well, aliens just put it all there. But of course, that's not gonna have any sort of intrinsic explanatory power. Um, so you have to sort of make that important distinction. And then I guess, when it comes to intrinsic, another important thing I think would be the amount of fundamental commitments we're trying to make. So I, I call it what I what I call it in the paper is um in the explanatory fundamental commitment. So when we're talking about the explanatory power of the ultimate final explanation, right? We're talking about the simplicity and the explanatory power of that. So that's that's one way you could sort of uh, understand explanatory power. Yeah. Is there anything? Yeah. Uh, no, that's good. Um, yeah, I, I would just add that um, add that when we're looking at um, explanatory power, we're, we're looking at, okay, you know, when we're comparing um, the hypotheses, um, which hi the hypotheses are going to have uh, certain things built into them, and that's how they're mm -hmm. going to ultimately explain things. So we, we say that naturalism would be a hypothesis that would that can only extrinsically explain things depending on your naturalism but if you go after like an opian naturalism um it can it can explain it can intrinsically like explain like the existence of matter and things but it's only going to have to extrinsically explain things like um complex agents or, or um or complex uh reproducible com um uh, sorry, uh, reproducible complexity that leads to uh, complex moral agents like ourselves that are conscious, um, things of that sort, um, mathematics, logic, and et cetera. And they can sort of explain those things after the fact. But so that'd be like an extrinsic explanatory power. Rather on mm -hmm. theism, theism has this intrinsic explanatory power with this like built into like the ontology of God himself. Um, you can derive things like um, morality, logic, mathematics, things of that sort. Um, it's going to be very unsurprising that you would get an orderly universe uh, that can organize itself into particular structures that ultimately um, 
that would ultimately point back to such a hypothesis. So theism would have um, would would have an intrinsic explanatory power. So that's kind of like the ways that we go about looking at the two hypotheses when we're ultimately comparing them. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Are you? Mm-hmm. And is there any, okay? Because um, I was going to say something else in regards to um, when we're talking. So when we say that theism has intrinsic explanatory power, what we're basically saying is that God has a certain ontology that will sort of make sense of these things, right? So I guess if you, if you were to compare theism with a sort of a physicalist naturalism, well, there's nothing in the physicalism, like if you're going to say that the foundation is is mindless, there's nothing in the foundation on the physicalist hypothesis that would make sense of consciousness, for example, whereas on theism, at least you have something relevant to the ontology. I think, I know um, Leftlau Tim Leftlau says something about that. What did he say? I forgot. What, yeah. Uh, so, so Brian Leftlau has a paper too, talking about these things. He says that theism explain things. Um, um, theism can explain things in a way that's actually relevant to God's own ontology. So, for example, God is a God is a supreme rationality, holy good, uh, omnipotent, all these different things, and. Um, what we see in the world is we see things that reflect that type of being. It's going to be very unsurprising that God is able to create a world that is ultimately orderly, rational, um, with moral agents in it, filled with goodness, etc. Versus, um, and ultimately, like things like consciousness, because God, God would be mind. Naturalism. Well, there's nothing when we look at the foundations of naturalism that says anything about mind, that says anything about comp, uh, that says anything about embodied moral agents, that says anything about the universe being orderly uh, and describable by relatively simple laws, that says that even when you have moral agents, that they should even be able to be aware of logical truths or mathematical truths and be able to apply them to the universe. Um, but on theism, that's kind of all built into God's own ontology at the get-go. So God has the intrinsic explanatory power to, to, to kind of, yeah, he has like the explanatory resources to produce those things. He has person building resources. He has um, absolute power so he can create universes of all kinds, of all kinds of complexities and intricacies. So that's the kind of explanatory power that theism would have. And that's what Brian Leftow means by you really explain things in, um, in a way that's relevant to God's own ontology, relevantly similar to God's own ontology. Mm, awesome. So we are going to get through about eight more questions here, and then we'll get a little bit of live Q&A at the end because there's a lot of good stuff here, but it'd be good to walk through the whole paper first. Um, so let's just talk about like what does Oppie's argument for naturalism look like? You hit on it a little bit, but could you just talk about um, when responding to Graham Oppie's like, atheistic naturalism, What what's the basis of, of his idea? Okay, so when we wrote the paper, we had to actually defend the argument at least – because there's a lot of misconceptions about the argument. Um, so some some th- some theists might say, oh, well, um, the, the the well, the naturalist has to posit something that's incompatible with God, or you know, there might be some other objection in regards to the fundamental commitments, um, or at least the fundamental entities. And we sort of respond like that's not Oppie's point. So I guess the structure of the argument is basically that both theism and naturalism have equal explanatory power. So all else being equal we should prefer the theory that has the, the least kind of entities, right? So what he goes over, he he basically attacks on what's called supernaturalist theism, which 
is the idea that um, God is a supernatural being, like God is a different kind of being than what we see in, in our universe, which is which he calls the natural, right? Um, and yeah, so, like, what do you? Um, sorry, I just no, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of like re on on theism, reality is, is split up into two distinct kinds of things: um, supernatural reality and natural reality. That's kind of how he looks at it. Yeah. So I guess a little quote here, just because he, I think he summarizes it pretty well. Let me see if I can find it. Basically, he's he basically says that. Um, okay, so he says theism is an extension of naturalism. Theism has all of the natural commitments that naturalism has, but adds additional supernatural commitments to it. And that's the basic point. It's like, okay, well, when we compare these two hypotheses, we have theism, which says that there's natural and supernatural, and then naturalism, which says it's only natural. Well, he just shaves off the supernatural. He shaves off all of the additional uh, commitments of supernaturalist theism. So that's, that's the basis of his argument. And he basically points out that, again, when we compare the hypotheses, naturalism is going to be the simpler hypothesis, right? Because we only have to say that there's a universe and that's it. Whereas on theism, you have to say there's a, there's a universe plus God. So just shave off God and, you know, the simpler theory is going to be naturalism. So that's, that's the basis of his argument. Do you have anything else you want to add there, Tim? No, it's great. Awesome. So how do you guys kind of respond to this argument? Because in, in your paper, you you kind of frame Oppie's argument and you give your response to it. So how do you respond to this? Yeah, so we first start off with um, sort of attacking, well, not we don't directly attack it at first, but we sort of mention how the distinction between natural and supernatural is very vague, right? That it's not really a good distinction. And so what we should instead be doing is we should be comparing um, naturalism and theism, not in terms of the ontology, but rather in terms of the foundations of reality. So um, theism would say that there is a perfect being, a perfect foundation, and then naturalism would say that there is an imperfect foundation, right? And so this is, then they're both equal in that sense, because the theist, what they're positing is perfection, and then what the naturalist is positing is imperfection. So they're both, um, we're not, again, we're not saying that they're, that they're, that God is supernatural and then there's a natural world. Like, no, we're actually saying that God is natural, right? It's just, he's supremely natural, right? So we call it, well, Josh Rasmussen, he calls it what's called the supreme naturalism, right? Um, so we could say like, okay, God is natural, right? It's just that, you know, he has more explanatory resources to make sense of the natural world, right? So that's basically what we're saying um, in regards to that. And then we bring up... Um, we bring up modal collapse problems, which we can get into. And then we also present our own model of theism, which bypasses his objection entirely. So I know, Tim, you wrote the section on modal collapse. You want to sort of get into, yeah. get into that? So, so when we look, so let's get back to a little bit to the, um, to, he compares the, the theories and they're like ontological items because he's going off of this. He's leveraging, he's getting a lot of mileage from ontological simplicity. And what he's doing is he's saying, you know, you're going to have some initial state, some initial world state, and then you're going to have like all these natural facts or natural ontological entities like following that. And then theism, you're going to have God, and initial world state and everything else. So um, it's also included in there. And so that's like that, that's where he he goes off of. And the first thing I want to say is that as as Kyle's. Is, is was pointing back to with the whole supreme naturalism is that when we look at ontological simplicity 
it's it's the appealing to um we don't need to posit um um like uh, additional kinds beyond necessity and so everything can be explained in natural kind but the thing is is that there's nothing about ontological simplicity that says how many of the entities under one kind that you can have so you can have as many entities as you want under um the natural on the label natural to explain everything that you want um but one issue uh that we bring up is well actually first i want to say this which is first you can actually just have an, um naturalism and theism under um on equal footing by just saying that um well on theism we only posit one kind as well so theism can opt in for one kind as well one ontological kind as well back that's harking back to the whole supreme naturalism idea and now naturalism and theism are both equal um they just aren't positing um so no one's positing additional kinds um so that's the first part so then theism can have um, as many entities under that particular kind as, as they want to explain things. So they'll be equal in terms of ontological simplicity. But but another issue with ontological simplicity, not issue, but something to point out, is that um, there isn't a way by which that's been proposed by which we can measure what counts as an additional kind, a new kind of thing to explain things. So are, if we discover new fundamental particles, will those, will those be different kinds? Because Oppie would consider those things natural, but would those be a different kind? Um, Rasmussen points this out. He says that the theist can just opt in for the kind thing. No, everything that exists is a is thing. So we can just say we just only are committing ourselves to the ontological kind of thing. So uh, no matter what happens, it's all under subsumed under the category of thing. But going back again, there's really no um way by which we can measure what is um counts as an additional kind or not if string theory turns out to be true super string theory turns out to be true and you have 11 dimensions and you have these vibrating strings and things are those additional kinds um and so that's one issue actually that trent doherty points out in a paper of his um when we're actually looking at this that's why Kyle and I uh, think that it's actually better to opt in for syntactical uh, simplicity, which is like the simplicity of the final explanation itself, the appealing to the fewest principles to explain everything, explain the le uh, explaining the, uh, the most with the least. It's like the elegance of the theory. And this is something that we kind of see like mathematicians and physicists really actually wanting to look for um, when we're describing things, something that can be whole um, sets of phenomena can be described can be explained by like one equation type of thing. So going, uh, so getting into kind of Oppie's view, Oppie says that there is this, um, he opts in for the necessary contingent view of the world, which is that there's one um, metaphysically necessary uh, foundation. And that is the initial world state, like an initial temporal world segment. And this is necessary. And then everything else that causally unfolds from the initial state is contingent. Well, I point out that this view is kind of problematic because um, Oppie says that there has to be objective chance, that objective chances will play out and that's how you get contingency from the initial world state. So what I point out is that if, the, if, this is, if they're all natural facts and Oppie has said himself that there is no difference 
uh, radical distinction between the initial state and everything else the initial state produces. The only difference is that it's just the initial state. So they're, they're all equally natural. They're just one's just initial and everything else isn't. Well, the problem here is, um, is that he has to get his cues from cosmology. He takes his cues from cosmology, meaning that Oppie um, actually suspends judgment and speculation upon what the nature of the initial state is like. He's leaving that up for the physicists. And I think that's pretty interesting given that he's a philosopher and that this is kind of his, we're doing metaphysics here. He doesn't know what, what kind of limits it would have or what it would be like. So he's kind of leaving it for the, to the, to the um, physicists and the cosmologists. But the problem here is that the, let's say that we have a final theory. It's going to be something quantum, because that's kind of the quantum regime is what we're in. And something, the final theory of physics could be something like, could actually be, um, at the end of the day, deterministic. There are indeterministic and deterministic theories on the table that are that seem to be equal. And if the theory turns out to be deterministic, then that pros, proposes a problem. Because like I said before, the only difference between everything else um, the initial state and everything else produces that the initial state is initial, then it would uh, it would be in a, a necessary, a metaphysically necessary initial state that deterministically deterministically produces everything. The problem here is that that would generate a like a Spinozistic like mold collapse scenario. Actually, there would be no contingency; everything would be necessary at that point. And that's the problem with um, you know taking your cues from the physicist, which is if it turns out to be deterministic, you have to. He's going to have to say, okay, well that's what the initial state is like. Um, and it runs into an irrelevant difference problem, which is there is, there is no relevant, there, it's an irrelevant difference positing an initial state, saying that initial state is different than everything else simply be, because it's initial. There's nothing that seems to me to make that necessary because if it's just the first in the sequence, but the sequence, they're all equal. It's like having five green blocks and you have one first block in the sequence. And then you would say, oh, but this green block has a completely different ontology than like has a completely different ont metaphysical ontological status than the rest of the green block. It's like, but how do you, how do you get there? Well, ultimately, Oppie says it's going to be brute. It's going to be a brute necessity. And to me, that doesn't really seem to be, um, doesn't really seem to be something that is um, preferable as a final explanation of reality. Um, so we run into to those problems, the, the modal collapse scenarios, the irrelevant difference problem of the of the foundation and all those things. So that that's that I kind of uh, take on on that part of the paper. Right. Um, so the next part is you kind of lay out your own version of like a model of like God and like a, a next an explanation that kind of counters options. Um, up then theistic like idealism. So, um, do you guys want to talk about like like what that is? What is your model? Um, and then we can get into Oppie's criticisms in the next bit here. But like, what's your counter model here? Um, to Oppie's naturalism. Yeah. So our model is basically well, I mean, we mentioned it before it's panatheistic idealism. But what that basically what panatheistic idealism says is that everything in in reality is ultimately fundamentally mental, right? Um, so. I guess you would, if you were to compare them, you know, naturalism would say everything is natural, whatever that means. But then the idealist is going to say that everything is mental, right? Um, so they're both equal in terms of ontological simplicity because everything in reality is mental, right? It's all, it's all within consciousness. Well, of course, it's going to be ontologically simple. And then, you know, it's panentheism because God is the sort of 
source. It's the God is like the necessary mind that sort of grounds all the uh, the mental items, right? And so, yeah, I, so we're kind of saying that we're, we're, we are we're following and we're saying that God it wouldn't be basically it wouldn't be a dualist view of reality anymore. Um, God would be um, not radically distinct from what he produces. So when we think about like our substance ontology, it would be under all one substance, as Kyle pointed out. And um, and when God creates something, it wouldn't be like a creation ex nihilo. It would be creating from himself. That God is the, basically the substance of the pre-existing materials by which he produces everything. Everything flows from God in that sense. So God in, uh, is um, imminent in the universe, but it extends beyond the universe because the universe is contained ultimately within God, God's mind. That's kind of what we're doing. Um, and that allows us to have, to, it allows it to be ontologically simple. It's not a new supernaturalist theism. Um, at the end of the day, that's kind of what it is. Um, go ahead, Kyle. No, yeah, that's, I think that's good. Awesome. So do you want to talk about a little bit about how Oppie criticizes idealism and kind of like your response here? Cause I think it's an important part here. Yeah. So, um, he, he wrote a, I guess I should mention, cause the only place you're going to find this, a, a paper copy is in this book called. It's called uh, Idealism, New Essays and Metaphysics. I don't know if you guys can see it, but um, so it's in, I think it's in, uh, it's one of his, one of, okay, it's chapter four of the book and it's called Against Idealism. And what he first does is he goes over the internal review, tries to show like, okay, each view is internally consistent with itself. And then the, his criticisms come in with uh, the comparative review. So there's three main line, although he, he doesn't, so there's three main line, line, lines of arguments that we respond to. Um, so the first one is, of course, he says, quote, on the one hand, naturalists is committed to the denseness of the universe, minded organisms, sofas, sculptures, cars, cities, rivers, planets, stars, and so on, and nothing else. On the other hand, the idealist is committed to all of the denseness of the universe, you know, everything I just mentioned, as well as the supernatural mind or minds of minded organisms um, or the contents of minds. Um, so our first criticism of this type of argument is that um, we're not positing that God is supernatural, right? Um, God is still the same kind of entity as everything else, right? So unless he's going to deny that a mind, you know, unless he's going to deny that minds exist, right, um, then it's not really going to work, right? Because minds on our view are still natural, right? Just as on his view, minds are still natural. Um, so I just want to sort of point that out that um, and then. The second criticism would be, and it, I guess I should also mention that um, when it comes to this type of argument, I think I think the idealist could actually make a sort of counter argument where it's like, well, everything's within experience and that's all we know of, right? So why posit this mind independent stuff um, that's outside experience? Um, and that's, that's I kind of get into that in the paper, but I guess the point is like, okay, if, if we're only explaining everything in terms of experience, then why posit something beyond experience? Right, where the naturalist is going to have to posit something that's beyond experience. So um, that sort of argument doesn't work. Now, the second argument is a little more interesting, which is that, so he says, quote, on one hand, naturalist is committed to the ideology needed to characterize the universe and its and its deathness and nothing else. On the other hand, idealist is committed to the ideology needed to ca characterize the universe and its senses and the ideology to characterize supernatural minds minds formatted organisms and contents of minds um so this can easily be countered and this is what i use in the paper so um when you look at 
the how the, the idealist and the naturalist try to explain reality, like explain what reality actually is. The idealist is only concerned with the properties of an object, right? So you talk about the shape of an object or you talk about the color of an object. Well, all these things that we use, these like these sensible properties that we use to describe objects, those are all mental, right? Those are all just experience. Whereas the naturalist is going to have to have that plus something that's beyond the experience itself, right? So what we're pointing out is a sort of, I wouldn't call it bundle theory because I think, I think there is still some sort of essence to the object itself. But when we're talking about actually describing the object, what well, we're only appealing to um, in principle sensible properties, right? Um, so the naturalist, the naturalist for every single property that the idealist uses to characterize something, the naturalist is going to, they're going to agree to that property because that's what it is. But then they're also going to say, okay, no, well, with color, oh, well, color doesn't really exist. Or, you know, it's just a wavelength or like all these, like they're going to have to add abstractions to every single property that you're appealing to. So every single time that the idealist appeals to a property, the, the, the naturalist is doing the exact same thing, except that they're adding an abstraction to that property itself, right? So they're having to add in an abstraction of matter, or an, I, I call it a abstraction of consciousness, where they're going to have to basically appeal to something that's beyond experience. And then finally, he goes over, I guess, another quote, the naturalist is committed to just the principles and laws that are required for the universe. And on the other hand, the idealist is committed to those principles and laws that are required for the universe, as well as the laws and principles that are required for the domain of minds, the contents of, and, the, and of course, the, uh, the content of minds. So, so he basically says that idealist is committed to every principle and law to which the naturalist is committed and more besides. Well, okay, so that's, to me, that's not really a good argument because, I mean, if you look at physics, for example, we have to appeal to new laws all the time. Like, I think with string theory, it's like, of course we have to appeal to new laws. Like, cause that's, you know, if, if string theory turns out to be true, then we're gonna have to add in new laws to describe those things. So it's the same thing with um, the idealist. It's like, well, in the idealist case, we're only appealing to the natural laws, right? It's just that those natural laws may be able to explain more than would have what would have already been there. And I, you know, in the paper I sort of mentioned how um how on idealism, because everything is within consciousness, then you could sort of describe the laws as sort of archetypes of uh the universal consciousness itself. So it's not like we're adding new laws, right? We're just sort of reinterpreting the laws that already exist um in the in the sort of idealist framework. Um, and now he does get into other kinds of arguments, but those are the big three ones um, that he appeals to. And I think the the rest of the the rest of the essay is basically an attack on supernaturalist the theism anyway. So we're not going to get much into that. But um, but yeah, those are the three main objections that uh, at least he brought up initially. Um, and I also think you know I agree with him. Like we should sort of understand that like we want to sort of trade off between the theories. And I think. Honestly, like, um, I think that if you're going to posit, let's say, okay, if, if you're a theist, right, and if you believe in, that there is a perfect mind, well, that, that, whatever that mind creates is going to, like, whatever your theory is trying to describe, you're going to have to appeal to something in the theory. Whereas on the naturalist side, it's the same sort of thing, where if you're positing mindlessness at the foundation, then you're going to have to appeal to a mind independent matter. So, regardless of which theory you hold, there's going to be some complexity in each hypothesis. And so if that's the case, then no theory can be 
simpler, right? Because each one is appealing to their own ontology. So just as just as the idealist would be shaving off mind independent matter, the naturalist is going to shave off, you know, um, the mind, right? So that's how I like to look at it. But but yeah, that, those are uh, those are the that's those are his criticisms, and uh, I don't think they work. But, but yeah. Do you want to add to him before we move on to this part? Yeah, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, um, we are all, the naturalists and the theists will be appealing to the, um, to the powers of the foundation, the powers have. And um, um, I'm on board with Oppie and Coons and Rasmussen and, and so on. Um, I hold two powers ontology. And ultimately, um, when you get to the level of the foundations, um, ultimately what we call law governed is really just power govern but um it's going to be the naturalists is going to be um it's going to have some kind of um finite boundary um some kind of mechanism in which determines how the powers do what the powers do and ultimately at the end of the day those things are going to be brute where on a perfect foundation um the uh the actions of the foundation that are power governed are ultimately going to be um, unbounded. They're not going to have a lower bound. They're not going to have an upper bound. They're not going to be arbitrarily limited. It's, it's just going to be absolute. It's going to have perfect power. So that's that's the difference. So it, again, we're not adding anything. Um, when we look at the foundations, we have to look at um, the essential nature of these foundations and and how they play out as we look at them as theories and things. So that's the only thing I would add. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so now we're going to get into some of the, like, um, the kind of like ideas surrounding the sound foundation and like why your explanation would be preferred over maybe oppies. And the first talk about it being this ultimate, ultimate metaphysical bedrock. Could you talk about like what that is and why that matters in this debate? Yeah. So ultimate metaphysical bedrock is when we have, we have applied all explanatory principles, all brutness producing principles. And, um, we get to something that's like, cannot be further reduced. Right. Um, and we call it ultimate metaphysical bedrock because that's what we're trying to look for. We're trying to look at what is the ultimate bedrock for reality once we have applied all of these principles. So that includes, you know, you want the explanation that has the least amount of bruteness. You want the explanation that has the simplest ultimate explanation of everything else, right? Um, so that's that's what we look for. And that's that's why we, um, we, we sort of created these principles, which we'll get into. But, uh, so, but yeah, that's what we call it. So Kyle, is this where we get into to really where the rubber truly hits the road? Like we've kind of been building up to this in terms of unification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Only three minutes in. Now we get to the the juicy <laughs> stuff. Right. This yep. This is the uh, this is the cumulative argument. So let's get started with presenting our argument. Um. So yeah. All right. Awesome. Well. Oh yeah. Go ahead. You wanna, no, I was gonna, I was gonna move on to the PSU, but if you want to add stuff, Tim, um, feel free to do that before we nope. get into that. Well, let's move on to the PSU. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. So let's talk about the um, the principle of simple unification, uh, kind of like a new idea that I think Kyle started developing, um, and how this relates to like the existence of God and things like that. So where do you want to start, Kyle? Yeah. So the principle of simple unification says that for any set of facts, whether contingent and or necessary, that exist, there is a simple unifying root that unifies the set of contingent and or necessary facts. We also, you can also refer to them as entities or whatever. And the basic point of this principle is to, we want the most unified or not just unified, but also we want the simplest 
unified explanation for everything. So when we're appealing to explanations, when we're trying to explain certain phenomena about the world, right, we're going to want a simple ultimate explanation that sort of unifies everything together into one nice little neat package, right? Um, and you could call this, I mean, I think that this principle is actually just syntactical simplicity. I mean, at the end of the day, where it's like, well, we're trying to appeal to the smallest number of fundamental commitments to then explain everything else about the world, right? Um, now, there's a few other principles that we do mention. Um, there's the principle of uh, simple containment, which is basically an extension, which basically says that for any, I guess this, to simplify, um, for any unifying root, there, that that root must be um, a containment of the facts, right? Um, so when we're talking about consciousness or morality, right, um, there has to be some something in God's nature or something in the unified nature that sort of uh, unifies and contains those things, right? Um, and I and I like this principle because um, when you look at naturalistic hypotheses, you're not going to be able to find any sort of natural object that's going to be able to contain, let, let, let's say the laws of mathematics, right? Like if I take a cross or like any sort of natural object in the world, I am not gonna find anything that's going to be able to contain the laws of, laws of mathematics. So if that's the case, that's gonna rule out a lot of naturalistic hypotheses, right? It won't rule out all of them, but it's gonna rule out a, a big chunk of them. Um, and and then, you know, when we get deeper, right? So then we get into, okay, well, then another principle is called the, the principle of uh, sufficient resources, right? So the simplified root must have resources to then explain everything. Um, and then finally, of course, you want, you know, all this will go back to uh, intrinsic explanatory power. Um, and then there's a few other principles you mentioned, like uh, the bruteness reducing principle, which says that like for our ultimate explanation, we want the least amount of bruteness as well as arbitrary limits and, um, that sort of thing. But I know, Tim, uh, I guess you can sort of add on to this, like why, I, I want the audience to understand why is it that this is important for theories, like unification yeah. in general? Perfect, awesome, glad you asked that. So yeah, so this is, this is what's important, which is that when we are looking for the simplest theories, um, especially when we're doing this kind of rival comparison, um, a virtue, and a very virtuous theory is one that can take otherwise separate phenomena and unify them under only having to appeal to one fundamental entity to explain them. So, for example, um, this is what this is what happens. We we see this happening in theories all the time. A a um, very modern and contemporary example would be um, the search for quantum gravity. The search for quantum gravity is inspired by what seems to be the inconsistency um, and the separateness and the, um, the and like non-connection between the classical regime in physics and the quantum regime in physics. Um, and right now, physics is, has been split up into classical and quantum, and there's nothing that can kind of unify them into one understanding that when we get to the level of the subatomic to the fundamental particles, we have to appeal to quantum physics. And then when we get to the level of macro physical objects, we have to appeal to classical physics. Um, and these are separate phenomena that have always had separate explanations that are not linked to one another. But the physicist, just like the mathematician, wants to be able to look for one 
appeal to one entity, one explanation that unifies these separate phenomena into one. So, so a search for quantum gravity that could either be super string theory, uh, Sean Carroll's emergent space time, uh, Leonard Susskind and others uh, with holographic universe, holographic principle, etc. These are all attempts at um, basically getting a theory of quantum gravity because that's what would be able to uh, unify these explanations under one. And the question is, you know, this is don't you you want to explain the most at the least? Uh, wouldn't you want to appeal to one explanation where you can derive all phenomena from that one entity and not have to appeal to separate explanations that have no linking or connection to one another? Well, when we take that unification principle, and unification is a theoretical virtue, they talk about unification all the time. Um, um, more examples of unification have to do when we went from Newtonian mechanics to general relativity, uh, uh, Maxwell and the electromagnetic spectrum, things of that sort, electromagnetism and, and things of that sort. We, we've seen unification all the time. So what we're doing is we're just following one um, Oppie's lead and we're saying, okay, well, let's look at these, let, let's look at the principles and the methodologies used in science for explanations and two, it's just ordinary reasoning. As Kyle mentioned uh, earlier in the show, that you know you have a book and um i can appeal to one writer for the book i can say okay all these pages all these ink and everything like that is due to one person but um that that's a unified explanation but a non-unified explanation would be well uh it was written by multiple people doing multiple different things and they have no relation to each other whatsoever well that's going to be a way more of a complex theory that's going to call out from our explanations. So all we're doing is we're taking this principle, this, this way of, um, we're taking what's actually used just in ordinary reasoning and also used in science, scientific methodology, and we're applying it to the ultimate metaphysical explanation of reality. And we're saying, okay, well, then there should be a unifying explanation of all of our set of available facts about reality, something that can unify consciousness, uh, the existence of matter and its fine-tuning, and it's um, it being orderly and being able to self-organize uh, complex bodies and objects, um, existence of embodied moral agents, um, uh, principles of mathematics, principles of morality, principles of logic, etc. On so that's what the whole unification is. And when we look at theism versus naturalism, theism seems to be the only hypothesis, the only theory that can actually do that. Naturalism, what they have to do is they have to posit a multiplicity of ultimately unexplained entities at the end of the day to account for these explanations. So there's, they're not linked, they're actually disentangled explanations. So to explain why the universe is uh, mathematically ordered can be, um, and then agents like us, our consciousness can map on to understanding it and mathematic, not mathematic, but mathematics and its nature of being self-consistent and the universe operates a self-consistent way. Uh, Oppie ultimately has to appeal to the, the fact that mathematics is metaphysically uh, necessary, but it's brute. So you have to appeal to the bruteness of mathematics. You have to appeal to the bruteness of logic. Um, so we, he has to make mathematics necessary, uh, logic necessary, and ultimately the initial conditions and the laws of nature necessary um, at the end of the day to explain these things. But on theism, that's all contained within God. God already has those resources to explain things. So God can take all those roots of otherwise separate explanation and those, and really they just, they just become branches, but those branches all of a sudden converge into one root and that root being God. 
So we only need to appeal to one entity, and it's actually the simplest kind of entity. It's an entity that is not arbitrarily limited. Um, it's just a simple mind with simple with, with simplest kinds of intentions, um, and that is not composed of anything that explains everything. And um, so we say that if you want to follow ordinary reasoning and uh, unification and the things that we use in science, um, there seems to be no natural object, no natural foundation that can actually do that. Um, and if we, if there is one, it hasn't been presented anywhere and it's going to look something completely, totally different than anything we've ever seen. So that's kind of the importance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, we get a few super stickers from Thank You Jesus. So thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate that and the super stickers. So thank you. Um, next question I have for you is you talk about the foundation being purely positive and my face is really big right now. I need to fix that. Um, <laughs> but what, what does it mean that like the foundation is purely positive um, going on progressing in your paper? Yeah, so the purely positive nature of the foundation basically means that it's perfect, right? Um, so what does this mean? Well, perfection, what we would say is perfection. There's different ways you can look at perfection, but um, one way you can sort of look at it is you take something that has pure excellence, right? And then you can sort of then derive other ex excellences. So like you have pure power, you have pure knowledge, pure goodness, right? So when we say something is purely positive, we just mean that it has no limit to its positive nature, right? And so when you're talking about um, pure positivity, right? Um, that's just basically, that's just another way of saying a perfect being, a perfect, perfect God. Right. And it's interesting because, so when it comes to it being purely positive, the fact that it's perfect means that it, it can explain its own necessity. Um, so what does that mean? Well, when you think about what's perfect, it must have all perfections, but then one of these perfections is going to be necessary existence so that it can explain its own necessary existence. And this is another, we didn't mention this in the paper, but like this is another theoretical virtue of theism where God can actually explain his own necessity, whereas on naturalism, you have to appeal to some sort of brute necessity. So that's another thing I want to mention, but like I'm just pointing this out because when we're talking about a purely positive being, we're talking about a perfect being, um, something that has no limit to its value and no limit to its excellence, right? Um, and the good thing about this is it's, it's simple. So the purely positive being by its nature is simple, right? Um, whereas if you talk about a naturalistic hypothesis, you're not going to get the same kind of simplicity as uh, as that. Um, Tim, you want to add anything with regards to yeah perfection? So God would just be a God would just basically just be a being of absolute perfection. God would actually have one core essential fundamental property attribute perfection, and then what flows and follows from perfection would be all perfections. And among those perfections would be necessary existence. So basically, by virtue of being perfect, God is necessary. And that would explain that would explain those things, you know, S5 model logic, if it's possible for a perf a, a absolute perfection to be instantiated, then it is instantiated, because it would include a necessary existence. Um, so, you know, if we think about like the PSR, the PSR is a principle we use to explain contingent things. The reason why we, um, we the reason why we look for a necessary terminus of contingent things is because the PSR basically says 
says that there is going to have to be an ultimate explanation of these contingent things that is not going to itself be contingent or else you'll run into brute contingencies. And I think that any explanation that includes brute contingencies is going to be less virtuous and have a disadvantage theoretically. So I don't think we should look for those things. Um, but the PSR is going to drop off. It's going to, it's going to, it's, it, it's not going to give us a further non-circular explanation of when you get to something that's necessary. So when we get to something that's necessary, um, instead of looking for something further non-circular, you would look for something internal into the nature of the thing that's necessary in the first place and we look into the in um look into the thing that we're appealing to that's necessary internally well what about it would uh would it give it its necessity and we're saying that would be, that'd be perfection <laughs> um, and so and so um but of course, we're going to run into epistemic limitations, which is not, that's not an exhaustive explanation. We completely agree that's not an exhaustive explanation of why God is necessary, but there is no rival theory that ex that does what, what, what ours is doing, which is saying that there's no rival naturalistic theory that would actually say, well, this is why the thing is necessary. It would always appeal to bruteness, but we would actually be able to um, limit the amount of bruteness that we'd have to appeal to when it comes to um, explaining God's um, ontological status um, of being necessary. Um, and so ultimately you get a unifying explanation that has the most amount of reduced bruteness, the most amount of unexplained things about itself. That's ultimately the um, metaphysical bedrock that can unify all things in itself at the end of the day. And we, we think that, um, that's as good as the theory is that 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 satisfies the criteria for what it means to be a virtuous theory a good theory and so uh using oppie's own um own uh approach um actually theism seems to be the the, the theory that uh that, that is the most virtuous definitely um so the next thing you talk about um in the paper is having theism providing like a unified foundation um so you talk about like the principle of simple unification now theism can kind of like put all these things together but is there anything you want to add here that you like kind of add in, in the paper um not really i mean we're just trying to make the point that when we're talking about something that's perfect right by its perfect nature not only is it going to be able to explain its own necessity right but it's also going to be able to explain these other um facts like or maybe you can call them necessities right so when you look at mathematics for example you could say that mathematics is um like each mathematical truth is dependent on another mathematical truth but then the entire mathematical landscape is dependent on something that's perfect because that's what perfection would entail perfection would entail um by its nature some sort of a mathematical framework or mathematical uh, landscape that sort of explains all the all the other necessities. So basically, there's two types of necessities. Either one, there is a dependent necessity, meaning that you have a necessity that depends on another necessity, and then you have an independent necessity, which is that it's necessary by its own nature. Um, and so God would, of course, God would be necessary by his own nature. He would be able to explain his own necessity by virtue of being perfect. And then all these other necessities are then sort of explained by God's necessity. Mm -hmm. um, so overall... It, it seems like theism has broader, it has more explanatory power because it, it can actually explain the necessities, right? So when you look at naturalism, the naturalist has to say that all these necessities are just there, right? There's no explanation for them. But the theist can say, okay, no, we actually do have an explanation for them, which is perfection. Perfection explains these necessities. And then what explains perfection is it's necessary perfection. So, um, 
So yeah. that's 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 gonna give it. It's gonna show that theism has broader intrinsic and extrinsic. I mean, just intrinsic, but you know what I mean. It's gonna have more explanatory power than um than naturalism would. So and I, and I want to add that you know if we're looking at you know in terms of explanation, you know let, let's just say that you have a, a a set P right and a logical consequence of P's instantiation existence is you get um, these various necessities. And those various necessities out of logical consequence would be explained by virtue of P's own existence versus on a naturalism. Um, let's say you have N and the only thing you get from N's existence is a universe. Um, but there's nothing that you can really say than the existence of matter that, that you would have this... Um, Either, either an indeterministic or deterministic causal unfolding that would include a macro uh, uh, macro level bodies and things that operate according to sim relatively simple laws that lead to agents that can be aware of the structure and things of that sort. There's nothing that that follows from that, um, but rather on theism, a logical consequence from that is actually those things. So, it's right. that that seems just to be the better, the most virtuous explanation. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Just to summarize, I mean, you start you start with perfection, right? A perfect being, and then from perfection flows perfect knowledge, which are moral rules, logical rules. So you get the laws of logic. You also get um, moral laws. Um, from perfection, of course, it would also flow mathematics, right? And then from perfection, because of God's nature, He's going to create a universe like ours. So you could actually explain fine tuning. And then because God also has a mental nature. Right then, he's gonna he's gonna be able to explain consciousness, right? Um, so you so theism can explain all this, all the all the facts about the world with one thing, whereas naturalism has to appeal to a bunch of things. So that's why uh, theism is the better hypothesis, basically. Yeah, awesome. Um, I have one more objection for you, and then we'll have about ten or fifteen minutes of Q and A. So if you want to put your questions in, there are a bunch. We won't get through all. Um, we'll get through some. And if you want to super chat, that will help you can support us and go to the top of the line. Um, the last thing I have for you is an objection that you cover in your paper is wouldn't just positing a mind add a complexity, um, to your hypothesis. So it seems like you know mind versus no mind having a mind would add complexity. So how's your what's your response to this kind of objection? Yeah. So. I guess we should sort of, I think this goes back to what I said about earlier with regards to comparing the two theories. So if you start off with um, theism, you have perfection as a foundation, then you could sort of, well, okay, from perfection, it seems like you would get, because God is a mind, right, then you would also get this mind-dependent reality. Whereas on naturalism, you have this mind-independent foundation, this mindless foundation that then produces a world of mind-independent things. Well, in that case, they're not adding complexity. Each side is equally complex because each side has to say something about what objects actually are. Right. Either your foundation is going to be mind or it's going to be non-mind. Yeah. Now, if you say you don't know, right, you just say, I don't know if it's mind or non-mind. Well, then you're not you're not putting a uh, hypothesis on the table. You're not saying anything about. So if you're not going to say anything about what the nature of the foundation is, then you can't say anything about what it's going to be able to, be able to produce. Right. If you presuppose that that there is a mind-independent world, then you're going to be a naturalist. Whereas if you presuppose that there's mind-dependent world, then you're most likely to be a theist. But at the end of the day, they're they're both equally complex in the sense of each each hypothesis has to say something about um, the ontological nature of of what things are. Um, yep. So that that's that's one way to look at it. And then another um, way to look at it, and this is what we said in the paper, was um, 
when you look at, so just talk about, if you look at fine tuning, for example, um, the different fine tuned constants, whatever they might be, is gonna have a certain probability to them. Well, naturalism, naturalism, what they're gonna say is on naturalism, these are just all brute. There, there is no explanation for why they are the way they are. Whereas on theism, you actually have an explanation in terms of God choosing those certain values. And the choosing is not brute because that's derived from God's perfection. God is gonna desire certain phenomena. Um, so that's, again, you'd have to read the paper on that, but that was uh, our response to that sort of objection. Um, Tim, you wanna add anything beyond that or? No, that was great. Awesome. So what we'll do now is we'll go to Q&A um, just for a few minutes here for about probably about 10 minutes here. So the first question we have here is from Benjamin Bethel, which says, wouldn't the Trinity make God more complex and therefore adding more unnecessary things about him? Um, so what do you think about this idea of like the Trinity as a, like an objection to the simplicity of your argument? Yeah. Um, so I'll say that we have to distinguish um, when, we're, when, we're, when we are invoking God as a theory and when we're, when we're just talking about God, not as a theory. Um, we are not saying, we are not building into our hypothesis that God is a trinity to explain all these facts. So that's the first part. So no, in terms of th of, of um, choosing uh, using God as, as an explanation, we are not building into our hypothesis that God is a trinity. This We are just simply um, uh, employing a uh, bare perfect being theism. Um, when we get into, when you got starts talking specifically about God, whether or not it's Christian, Islamic, or Jewish, then that's a different question. We're not using the Trinity as our explanation. Um, second thing I'd, I'd want to say is, is that, um, actually, you know what, Kyle, you go ahead. Yeah. So the second thing is when we're talking about perfect being, I think a perfect being, one of the entailments of being perfect is that God could actually choose to be as many persons as he wants, right? So God didn't have to be three persons, though he chose to, whatever that reason may be, but that's not, the the Trinity is not built into God's, so God's perfection is more simple, right? The, the Trinity would sort of derive from, from God's per perfection, or you could say that the Father is the foundational sort of perfection, and then the Son and the Holy Spirit are sort of derivative from that perfection. Um, but regardless of how you look at it, right, um, there, there is no, we're not adding complexity because the foundational nature of God is still simple in that sense. It's just, there might be, we can make a sort of distinction between God's fundamental nature versus his non-fundamental nature. So his fundamental nature is going to be simple. It's going to be perfect. Whereas his non-fundamental nature may include the Trinity or, you know, other things. So, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. The next question we have is from Plantinga's Bulldog. He says, uh, so maybe the foundation is perfect, but why say each of its separate properties, such as like power or knowledge, is unlimited? Um, perhaps the, compo the composability of all properties to perfection limits properties. Um, so what are your thoughts here? Um, hmm. So it would be unlimited because that's a, that's a, that's a consequence of um, – perfection so power and knowledge are both consequences so the fact that they're unlimited means that they're consequences of perfection so that's that's what perfection does it's basically a perfect being is going to be all powerful a perfect being is going to be all knowledgeable right um and then of course when you're talking about the compatibility of all properties um 
I'm not really sure how it would limit properties, so to speak, but um, I think whatever perfection entails, it would have to be self-consistent. So whatever is entailed from perfection must be consistent with perfection, right? Um, so that's how I like to sort of think of it. Um, I don't know, Tim, you want to add anything? Um, I don't know if it's, this is the way the question is worded, but I'm not really seeing... I'm not really catching the oomph behind the question here um, besides just looking into the nature of perfection because perfection would would mean you would have a being that's purely actual, that'd be pure actuality and purely positive. So um, when we're looking at explanations, uh, it's going to have power, obviously it's going to have, um, it's going to have power to its um, maximum absolute degree and mm. all these other things so maybe i'm just not reading it right but yeah well thank you i think you guys helped a little bit um and kyle knows how to reach you guys if you if you guys more questions um probably the last question we have here is from jono staker which says um do you think assigning numerical prior probabilities in philosophy is essentially like subjective or arbitrary if not um what values do you assign to theism natural so in your paper i don't think you give like numerical probabilities but no what are your what are your kind of thoughts on this question so, um, yeah I'll just say this real quick. Basically, what we did is we actually took a Rasmussen-style um, argumentation um, under a like Swinburnian framework, but minus the Bayesian cal uh, minus the Bayesian like cal uh, calculations and things of that sort that Swinburne would try to go would try to um, would try to do. So um, we are using a kind of Bayesian reasoning. This is more of an inductive support probabilistic type of um, cumulative argument that's what Swinburne does but we aren't looking at like the respective probabilities like this would then reach theism to um, 0.1 the naturalism to here and then all of a sudden this raised theism to 0.5 and then naturalism point like we aren't doing that um, but we are employing a Bayesian kind of reasoning to kind of um, to kind of put uh, to in our cumulative approach mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Um, we have one more question here from BDS that we'll squeeze in, which says, um, do we have limits? If so, aren't we radically different from God? Um, so I think it's getting into like your pantheism here. I saw this one. Yeah, he was talking about um, when we were talking about how God is not radically, would not be radically distinct from creation. But we're, what we're saying is that creation and God would share one ontology, one substance ontology, that being mental. Obviously, there are different objects and different things like i am not this glass but we share one ontology fundamental ontology being mental and god is mind so um so that's that's what i mean by not radically distinct in the way that um there wouldn't be it wouldn't be this dualist picture of the universe that god is has a completely distinct ontological category and then creates a universe with another with a completely distinct ontological category of its own that that's not what we're saying that's what i mean by he's not radically distinct awesome well guys it's been a lot of fun so i appreciate you guys presenting your paper here um the, i put the paper through the live chat a couple of times and i'll add it to the description when we're done here um but both of you guys feel free to share any like last thoughts you have and if like people want to follow you guys and your work um how can they do that yeah so um for me just again go look up christian idealism you'll find my channel um i make a lot of good content on there um and if, if you have any questions, like, let me know, email me. Um, I'm happy to 
sort of respond to any questions people might have. I mean, I one time I got a bunch of questions about um, Baldwin brains, and I did a whole video <laughs> on it. So yeah, it was yeah stuff like that happens sometimes. But but yeah, go ahead and subscribe to my channel. Yeah yeah and, you can um, yeah yeah you like like I said in the beginning, um, you can find me at Invoking Theism, and I'm active on Twitter. So you feel free to um, follow me there, tweet me there, DM me there, um, and things that sort of most active social media wise on there. And um, yeah. Awesome. Well, Tim, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a lot of fun. Yep. Thank, thank you. you man. Awesome. So thank you everyone for tuning in to Adhering Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. So if you enjoy the show, you can support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Your support helps a lot. Um, so you can go and do that. I encourage everyone to go follow Kyle and Tim. You can do that. Um, the links to the channels are down below. Lots of great content that these guys are producing. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, BDS, Jono, Curity, JMD, Apologetics, Computer Theist, everyone else. Um, very, thank you so much. Thank you, Jesus, for the super chats. It's been so much fun to talk about this and have a good one, everyone. And God bless.